In his book, The Gospel of the Kingdom, George Eldon Ladd makes the following statement. This age is hostile to the gospel, and men often yield in conformity to this age rather than surrender to the claims of the gospel. There is a conflict between the age and the gospel of the kingdom. Whence comes the evil, the hatred, the deception, the strife, the conflict, the sin, the misery and the pain, suffering and dying which characterize this age comes from Satan. This does not mean that man can throw off responsibility for his own evil conduct. Man remains a free moral agent and is answerable both before the judgment of God and his fellow men. It does mean that evil is more than human. It has it has its source in an evil, superhuman personality. We discover in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the manifestation of satanic influence. It's not found in the fact that the God of this age has dragged good men down to the gutter of sin or that strong young men and beautiful young women have become thrown into a sink of immorality and corruption. Rather, in their case, the God of this age hath blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Here is the root of evil, blindness, darkness and unbelief. Now, if Lad is correct in saying evil has its source and a supernatural personality and the root of evil is unbelief, then the cure for evil will never be found in man-made solutions. Supernatural problems require supernatural solutions. Now, thankfully, we serve a supernatural God who has authority and power to fix supernatural problems. For whatever reason, God has chosen to partner with us. Or perhaps it would be better to say he allows us to partner with him to bring super, his supernatural solutions to these earthly supernatural problems. One of the main ways he does this is through prayer. Tonight we're going to incur, we're going to look at a, a passage talking about prayer and we're going to spend some time praying. And we want to pray for God to bring supernatural solutions, the supernatural problems in our world. But specifically, we want to focus on praying for God to save the lost. So open your Bible to 1 Timothy 2, uh, verses 1 through 7 is what we're going to look at. That should be on page 910 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. First Timothy 2, 1. First of all, then, I urge that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made in behalf of all people. For kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth and I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. You are great. And also help us tonight as we come to this passage. Let your spirit come and open our minds to understand it. Stir our hearts to be burdened and pray uh, for the lost to be saved. Father, let us pray specifically and let us see answers to prayer. Father, let us see your kingdom come and your will be done. In the hearts and the minds of those that we pray for. Father, let us see many people that we know and love, that are lost, let them see them brought to a saving knowledge of Christ as Savior, to give themselves to Him and live for Him forever. We ask in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. Church, you may be seated. 
Now, this passage is going to be the foundation of our study, but we are at various times going to look at other places. Uh, but no matter where we go, we are always going to come back to this place. The, the main thought, if I were going to have a main point like I do on a Sunday morning in a regular service, the one main thought I would have is that we always please God when we pray for other people. That alone should be a good reason for us to be intercessors, for us to pray for the salvation of the lost. But Paul does give us three other gospel Jesus-centered reasons for us to pray for God to save the lost. The first is that God wants the lost saved. God wants the lost to be saved. One of the great truths of the gospel message is that both God's will and God's want for all people to be saved. Right? That's what we see in verse 4. God wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, there is... More, there is a lot of strength in God's will and God's want. There is a strength in this desire that I fear we could miss or forget, right? And I want us to look at some passages that show us God's great desire for the lost to be saved. So first turn to Luke 13, verse 34 and 35, page 797 in the Pew Bible. Luke 13, verse 34. Jesus saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her young under her wings and you were unwilling Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, there is an intensity to Jesus' desire for the people of Jerusalem to be saved. Now, these are a people who have resisted him and rejected him. But his desire to see them saved, his desire to save them is still there. And it is still very strong. And one of the reasons... His desire to see them saved is so strong is because he knows there is a judgment to come. He knows that by resisting him and rejecting him, they're placing themselves in a place where judgment will fall on them. And he wants them to be saved from the judgment to come. Right now, let's look at Luke 15. It says, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus to listen to him. And I won't read the passage uh, so the whole passage is three stories. It tells a story of a woman who lost a coin, uh, a shepherd who lost a sheep, and a dad who lost a son. And all three stories are essentially telling the same truth. And the truth is God wants the lost to be found. Right? Just as much as a, a shepherd who loses one of his sheep desires that one sheep to come back to the fold, God wants His people to come back just as much as a woman who loses one of her ten coins wants that one coin back. God wants His people to be found just as much as a father who has one prodigal wants that one son to come home. God wants the lost to be found. Another truth in this is that there is great rejoicing when the lost are found. That is a theme in all of the stories. When the shepherd brings his sheep back, he rejoices and he says, just as the shepherd rejoices, there is rejoicing in heaven. When the woman finds the one coin she lost, she rejoices. And Jesus says there's also that kind of rejoicing in heaven. 
And then when the prodigal son does return, the father throws this great feast and has a great party. And it again, it is symbolic of what happens in heaven when someone, when the lost are saved. And this is, what's important is, this is God's attitude toward all the lost. Every person we know who is lost and separated from God, this is what God wants for them. God wants them to be saved. And when they're saved, God will rejoice and all of heaven will rejoice. Now turn to Luke 19, verses 41-44. It says, When Jesus approached Jerusalem, He saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known this day, even the conditions for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eye. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will put up a barricade against you, surround you, and hem, and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and throw down your children within you. And they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of this visitation. Now this is familiar with the story we looked at previously in Luke 13. But the main difference here is that it shows more of the, the desire, more of the depth of Jesus' emotion to the fact that they are going to face the judgment to come. Verse 41 says he, he wept over it. Now the word wept, that's translated as wept here, it does not picture Jesus sort of standing there stoically while a, tr a tear trickles down his face. Instead, it is a, a strong word. It is a, it pictures a deep sob. In fact, the, the, the Amplified Bible says Jesus wept audibly. So here we see the Son of God nearly overcome with emotion and the emotion specifically of sadness because of the lostness of the people and the judgment that is going to fall upon them. Now, all throughout, I would say, the history of the church, those who understand God's heart for the lost, they mirror that heart themselves. So look at Romans 9, page 863. Romans 9, verses 1 through 3. This is Paul. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifying with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my countrymen, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, obviously, again, Paul is not God, but he showed, it shows Paul understood God's desire for the lost to be saved. He not only understood it, he, he shared it. The sorrow and grief he felt at those who were lost Staying lost and facing the judgment of God brought him this deep, continual grief and sorrow. Right? And notice, it's a great sorrow and an unceasing grief. This isn't a, a minor, gosh, I, I wish they would get saved. And it isn't just occasionally it bothered him. I think it really pictures that it was something that it was a deep level of grief, of great sorrow that he carried, a great weight upon him about it. And he was just kind of, he constantly felt this grief with him. It was always with him. The message paraphrase translates this by saying, Paul was in enormous pain and he was never free from it. He felt the burden so deeply, he said if it were possible, he would be willing to go to hell that they might be saved. That, that is a strong desire for their salvation. And then if you look at the last one, Romans 10 and 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is for their salvation. 
Right? So his he had a great desire for them to be saved. This is God's heart. This is God's desire. God wants the lost to be saved. As disciples of Jesus, our desire for the lost to be saved ought to, to mirror God's. As much as humanly possible. Now clearly ours is not going to be exactly like God's. But as much as it can be, it should be. So what I want us to do now is we're going to take a minute, few minutes and, and pray. Pray and ask God to let His desire for the lost to be saved to become our desire for the lost to be saved. For, his, for like Paul's burden over the lost to become our burden for the lost. Right? This is what we, we want to have as we begin to pray for, for God to save the lost. Father, we love you. We thank you that you've loved us. You've loved us with an everlasting love. You've worked to draw us to yourself. You have loved us in a way that has sent Jesus to come and die on the cross for our sins. And then you've loved us to send your spirit to deal in our hearts and draw us to you. You've loved us to keep us, to not give up on us, to restore us the many times we've failed to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness when we've confessed our sins to you. Father, we know that the love you have shown to us and the desire you had for us to be saved is the love you have for those outside, those who are lost. It is the same desire you have for the lost in our community, the lost around us to be saved. We pray tonight, Father, for you to give us this kind of a a desire for the lost to be saved. Father, we pray for the kind of burden that the Apostle Paul had, that Jesus had, that our hearts would break and, and our eyes would leak over the thought of the fact that the people around us, the people we know and care for, they're going to die and face the judgment to come simply because they have resisted and rejected you. Father, let us not be able to go through a day without aching over the lostness of our community, the lostness of those that we love. We repent, Father, of how easily we have let ourselves kind of forget about the lostness of the world around us. We've let it get away from us. We've gone through our day and been too busy to really spend time crying out to you on behalf of others. Forgive us for that. Draw us to you in prayer. Let us lift up people's names in confidence in your power and your greatness. Have your way tonight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, go ahead and turn back to 1 Timothy. So God wants the lost to be saved. The second reason we we pray for the salvation of the lost is that the lost cannot be saved apart from Jesus. Look at verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. So the obvious point is connecting to verse 4. God wants all the lost to be saved, but... The only way the lost can be saved is through faith in Jesus. Now, this is, of course, basic gospel theology, something we all already know. But it is also something we should frequently 
meditate on. Uh, it is critically important for us as disciples of Jesus to be absolutely certain, to know without a shadow of a doubt that no people, no person will ever be saved apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Right? This is the testimony of God's word. Right? This isn't just my idea. This is what the Bible says. This is what we see in God's word. Right? If if people could be saved in any other way other than through Jesus, the cross would be essentially meaningless. It, it says that in the book of Galatians. Now, so while, while God's word declares this and God's word teaches this, we, we, we must embrace it. We must understand it. We must know that nobody, no one ever anywhere will be saved through baptism, but not faith in Jesus. No one will ever be saved by church membership if they don't have faith in Jesus. No one will be saved by good morals, but just by faith in Jesus. No one who's kind will be saved by their kindness, except they be born again through faith in Jesus. That a person's nationality does not save them. That deism, just belief that there is a God out there somewhere, is not enough to save them. People will only be saved through faith in in Jesus, religion, no matter what religion it is, being religious apart from believing in Jesus will not save that, that nothing other than Jesus can save people. The only way anyone is ever saved is through faith in Jesus. We we must know that we must embrace that. We must let that always be on the forefront of our hearts and our minds as we pray for the lost, as we invite people. I mean, this is why. We unashamedly invite people to Easter service for our other church services. We invite them to come because what we're doing here could change their eternal destiny. That on that day they will hear about Jesus. They will be given the opportunity to believe in Jesus, call on Jesus, and be saved by Jesus. And we know that that is the only way they will ever be saved. It's by hearing about Jesus, believing in Jesus, calling on Jesus, and Jesus alone Saves them. And since this is the case, what I want to do now, this is the part where I want to give some ways to pray for God to work in the lives of the lost for them to be saved. Now, the reason I'm praying, teach it the way I'm going to teach it is because the Bible says, Jesus said, No one comes to the Father unless the Father draws no one comes to me unless the Father draws me, draws them. Right? So we don't pray. For them to make a decision. Because they won't just make a decision. Unless God first initiates contact with them. Salvation is far more about what God does in the life of the lost person. Than it is about what the lost person suddenly decides on their own. And so what we're praying for is for God to begin to work in their heart. In these various ways. In their lives. In these various ways. To make them realize how desperately they need Jesus. And then for them to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and be saved. So first, pray for the eyes of the lost to be open. And we know that praying for their eyes to be open isn't talking about physical eyes, but spiritual eyes. Scripture often uses the idea of seeing to refer to people understanding the gospel. And I, re I referenced this earlier. That if our gospel is hid, our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving... 
so they will not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants on account of Jesus. For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, again, when we talk about only people can only be saved through Jesus, this is a good verse. Because it says if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now, veiled doesn't mean that they've never heard the gospel. Veiled essentially means that they, they don't understand their need. It doesn't even mean they don't understand the gospel. What it means is they don't understand how it applies to them. They don't see their need for the gospel or they don't see their need for Jesus. So anytime you talk to somebody, anytime anybody you know who doesn't see their personal need for Jesus, for their personal salvation, understand this is speaking of them. The gospel is veiled to them and they are then perishing. Again, this is a that clear gospel truth. Any person, anywhere, who does not see the need for Jesus, a personal need for Jesus for their salvation, they are perishing, regardless of of anything else going on in their lives. No matter how good or religious or anything else they are, if they don't see a need for Jesus, the gospel is veiled and they're perishing. But the gospel is veiled in this case, it says, because the God of this world has blinded their minds. So they will not see the light of the gospel and the light of the glory of Christ. This is the condition of every person who doesn't see their personal need for Jesus. Satan is in some ways working in their lives, working in their minds, guiding their thoughts, preventing them from seeing their need for Jesus. Now, there's a multitude of things he could be doing to blind their minds. Uh, We'll talk more about stuff like that in a minute, but just know... That those who don't see their need for Jesus, the devil is actively working in their minds, in their thoughts, guiding them, controlling them, keeping them from ever seeing their need for Jesus. Now, that, should, that, that is a weighty thought, and it should be. But it's not a hopeless thought. Because our God can cause light to shine in the darkness. right? And he can cause people to see their need for Jesus. We, we know we can do it because he did it in us. Right? Because we were all at that place at one point in our lives. At one point, the gospel was veiled to us. We were perishing. But somehow, we began to see we needed Jesus for ourselves, for our lives, for our salvation. How did that happen? It happened as God, through the Holy Spirit, caused light to shine in our minds, and help us to see our desperate need for Jesus. So what God has done in me, He can do in others. What God has done in you, He can do in others. And so this is what we pray. We pray God will work through His Word, because that's what He does, right? As we preach, not ourselves, but Jesus. So as the Word of God, the Gospel is is being spoken to them, God causes the God through the Holy Spirit takes that word, shines gospel light into their sin darkened minds, and they're able to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They recognize their need and they're saved. They turn to Him and are saved. And so that's what we pray. We pray for the eyes of the lost to be opened. We also pray for the Holy Spirit to convince the lost. Before an unbeliever, a lost person can be saved. 
They must be convinced of their need for Jesus and then call on Jesus. Right? This is something the Holy Spirit does. When he comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Regarding sin, because they do not believe in me. Regarding righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you no longer see me. Regarding judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, the idea of convict is, I think, better expressed as convinced. Because the idea of convict isn't necessarily to make people feel bad. That's what we often think, that it's to make people feel bad. Right? And if they don't feel bad, then they don't come to Jesus. But rather, the picture of this is convince. Convince them of something they did not previously believe. Right? Convince them of something they previously did not know or understand or had not accepted. And the truths that the Holy Spirit makes convinces them of is that, one, they are sinners. Two, they are unrighteous. And three, they will face the judgment to come. Right? So when we pray for the lost to be saved, we must pray for the Holy Spirit to convince them they have sinned. And that their sin is serious. The reality is, most unbelievers in the world, most of the lost people around us, they do not believe their sin is serious. If they believe in sin at all, if they believe they have sinned at all, they do not believe it's serious. And we, 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 do, we play a part in helping at times. But no matter what we do, we can't make them see that. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can convince them. They have sinned and their sin is serious. Then once they realize their sin is serious, they also, the Holy Spirit convinces them that they have no righteousness. Right? They're guilty. Not, not guilty like I feel bad, but, but in a court of law, they are legitimately guilty. They are legally guilty in the courts of heaven. And because they are legally guilty of sin, they have no righteousness of their own. The Holy Spirit has to convince people they are not righteous. Again, that's a big thing. We, we do have a part we play in helping people with this. But no matter what we do, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, we cannot convince people they're guilty. We cannot convince people they have no righteousness. Um, the Holy Spirit has to do this. And then the Holy Spirit convinces them where righteousness is because I'm going to my Father, Right? Righteousness is found in Jesus. Again, this is not a... Think about how unnatural this is. Is it natural to believe, one, I'm a sinner? Not really. Two, because I'm a sinner, I am unrighteous and will be held accountable someday. But I can be righteous through a guy who died and rose again several thousand years ago. That's not a natural message, is it? That's not something we can just appeal to the intellect and they're going to and we can rationalize their way to it. It won't happen that way. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can convince people that what they need to fix their sin problem is not to turn over a new leaf, not to, to try to be different, but to turn to Jesus and be saved. And then we need the Holy Spirit to convince people there is a judgment to come. When the Holy Spirit does this work in their lives, people are cut to the heart, as we see in Acts 2.37. And that's when they say, what must I do to be saved? That's, that's the kind of convincing we want the Holy Spirit to do in people's lives. Where they are brought to the end of themselves, 
They're brought to the end of trying to find their own solutions to their problems. They're brought to the end of trying to, to fix it and make it right. And instead they just say, what do I need to do to be saved? Again, the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to do this. So we pray. Pray the Spirit of God would use the Word of God like a sword, a sharp two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12, to cut people to the heart and bring deep and abiding conviction that leads them to repentance. Pray the fortresses and the minds of the lost. Pray for the fortresses of the minds of the lost to be broken down. This is the longest one we'll talk about. Every unbeliever has some sort of thought process, some sort of reason why they don't believe in Jesus, why they don't need Him. And they've got this thought process and they've built it up in their minds and it is keeping them from Jesus. The Bible warns us about this, tells us about this. For the weapons of our warfare, not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying arguments and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God and are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now God's word calls these fortresses. Most translations say uh, strongholds. I actually like fortress better. And I prefer the word fortress better. Because it gives us to me a better picture of what these reasons really are. A fortress is a place you retreat to. To hide from an enemy. That's ultimately what a fortress is. It's a strong place to hide from the enemy. So they can't get you. For the lost, God and belief in Jesus are the enemy. And the reasons they give for not believing in Jesus are the fortresses where they hide from Jesus. Now notice, God's word tells us these fortresses are made of arguments and arrogance raised up and are raised up against the knowledge of God. When threatened by the knowledge of God or the gospel or faith in Jesus, the lost will go to their fortresses. They will raise up their arguments. They will raise up their arrogance to protect them. And that's the whole purpose of them. To protect them from having... And it's not... It is ultimately because they don't want to be accountable to God. If if God is real, if Jesus is real, if Jesus really died and rose and ascended and calls, then there are there's an accountability to our life. Right? Isn't that... I mean, that's the, if there really is a God... And he really sent his son, Jesus, and Jesus really did what the Bible said. Then then this is what's right. And how it says we have to live is how we have to live. And what it says we have to believe is is what we have to believe, whether we feel it, whether we like it, whether it hurts our feelings or not. Well, the, the lost world, the vast majority of them, they don't want that. They don't want the accountability of God's word. They don't want to have to take up their cross and follow Jesus. And so they come up with arguments and arrogance. And they use them to guard their minds, to guard them against Jesus. And if someone starts to share the gospel with them, then they they flee to their fortress. But but what about? but, but, But what about this? And they're, they're hiding, essentially hiding from Jesus. And any number of issues can become fortresses built out of arguments and arrogance to be lifted up against the knowledge of God. Just a few. Pride. Pride is a huge one. Right? The arguments are, are based out of arrogance. 
Everything about the gospel is pretty pride crushing, isn't it? We're sinners. That's, that's pride crushing. We can't fix ourselves. That's pride crushing. We, we can't put God in a test tube and come up with all of this of what God is made of. That's pride crushing. We don't know what's best for our lives. That's pride crushing. We need one another. I can't just go it alone. That's pride crushing. And so, pride. No, 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 no. I'm just too smart. Too smart to believe all of that. That, And that becomes the stronghold. That becomes the fortress. False spirituality. And and false spirituality is to me an umbrella term referring to any non-Christian spirituality. Whether it's another religion or whether it's new agey type stuff. All of that becomes a way that people retreat to, a fortress. Well, I'm glad you have Jesus, but I have Allah. I'm glad you have Jesus, but I have Jehovah. I'm glad you have Jesus, but I have the writings of John Smith. I'm, I'm glad you have Jesus, but, but I worship Mother Earth. What, whatever it would be. All of these sort of false spiritualities are ways to say, no, I always are true. All spirituality is good. Sin. Um, sin. Now, this is interesting for me. I, I don't think it's I think it's both. I think there is the slavery to sin that can become that. But I think the bigger problem is the love of sin, the lack of sin. For many people, the reason they won't embrace Jesus is because they love their sin. Jesus said they love darkness more than light. And it's not so much that they have all of these rational arguments that, that prove the Bible wrong and prove God isn't real and Jesus didn't really come. Rather, they love their sin and they don't want to give up their sin. And so they latch on to anything that allows them to stay in their sin. Right? So sin becomes this fortress they flee to. And they find arguments and arrogance and they raise them up against the knowledge of God. A secular worldview can become um, a fortress people run to. They're raised and they believe a mindset where there's a naturalistic mindset, where there is no God. There's no miracles. There's no nothing like that. Then that becomes, well, I don't know how you can believe. I just don't think I could believe in raising from the dead. That seems too far-fetched. Shame can become one. Some people, because of the life they've lived, the things they've done, they're ashamed. And when it comes to a holy God forgiving them, they, they don't, they're not entirely sure that's possible. And so they, they flee to the fortress of no, no way a holy God would ever love me. Hardships. Some people have legitimately had terrible things happen to them in their lives. But their hardships then become a fortress where they flee to against the knowledge of God. If God is good, why would he allow those things to happen to my life? Why would a good God allow bad things to happen to me? I was innocent. I hadn't done anything wrong. And those hardships are the fortress they run to 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 keep from acknowledging God. Comfort, pleasure, apathy, wealth, so many things. There's just no ultimate limit to what a stronghold, what a fortress could be. And they, they do exist, but notice what we're told. We have weapons, not of the flesh, Now, gosh, I don't have time to get into all this. Not of the flesh means we don't overcome their arguments with our arguments. 
right? We can't yell them down. We can't berate them and belittle them to knock the wall down. What we do when we do that, if we're not careful, is we feed them more arguments to make their fortress bigger and stronger. The weapons are not they're not carnal. They're not of the flesh. They are divine weapons. They come through God and and they destroy the fortresses and they bring thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, of course, ultimately, it is prayer. And God's word. That is how we do it. Look at what God says. Is my word not like a fire and, and, and a, like a hammer which shatters rock? The ultimate way that, that the strongholds are defeated, that the fortresses are knocked down, is not with worldly arguments and worldly attitudes and carnal actions. It is with just... This is what the Bible says. This is what God says. Now, the Holy Spirit, again, works. He has to take it and make it effective. But the greatest power to smash a fortress and cause thoughts to be brought captive to God is the Word of God. And so we pray against those strongholds. Right? We, we pray for God's Word to, to be used. Now, if we know the strongholds that they have, And if it's somebody we know, we probably do. We've heard the arguments. We've heard it said. We begin to pray against those things. Maybe we find a a Bible verse that that specifically speaks against it. We begin to pray that God do this in their life. Or maybe they are people we know that they know the Bible a little bit. They've been in church. They were raised around or they heard it. And there's there's some there. There's some word in their heart that's already there. And we say, God, take what they know and begin to use it to smash the stronghold. Smash this particular stronghold. Right? So we, we pray. Pray for God to smash the fortresses they've built. And then the last one. Pray for the lost to hit rock bottom. Now, this sounds strange. And I think it's hard. And it's often overlooked. But I do believe it's an important aspect of praying for the lost to be saved. Think about the story of the prodigal son from Luke 15, 11 through 20. He asks for his share of the inheritance. He goes off to live a wild life. And while life is good, he sees no need for his dad. He sees no need to go back home. But eventually, he did see the need to go back home. Why? Well, because there was a famine in the land. And his money ran out. And his friends leave him. And the fun goes away. So he takes a job feeding pigs, which is just about the worst job any Jewish man could take. But he takes it because he's nearing rock bottom. Now, he's not there yet. He's still trying to fix it. He doesn't need his dad. He'll get a job and he'll keep doing it. And so he slops the hogs and he feeds the pigs and he does that. But then one day as he's feeding them, he looks at the slop and he says... I'm awful hungry. I'd like a spoonful of that myself. Now, if you've ever slopped hogs, you know how rock bottom someone has to be to think hog slop is a good thing to eat. And at that moment, he begins to realize, and life was really good with Dad. His servants are better off than this. And so he gets up and he goes home. It is unlikely the prodigal son would have ever gone home so long as his money, his friends, 
and his good times continued. He only realized his need to go back to his father after he hit rock bottom. Now, someone hitting rock bottom is a bad thing. I cannot imagine how hard it would be to watch someone we love get to this place. But the reality is some people will remain lost until they have nowhere to turn but Jesus. So long as there is something or someone else propping up their life and they don't need Jesus, they will never go to Jesus. It is only in that moment when they're looking at the hog slop and they realize, wow, life was better with Jesus. I think, well, I know, in some cases, we actually have a mandate to pray this way. The Apostle Paul said, I have decided to turn such a person over to Satan for the destruction of his body so that a spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, this is a huge statement. Paul is calling on the church to withdraw any blessings, any good, any spiritual protection they may bring this guy so Satan can have his way with him. That's what he's saying. Turn him over to Satan. So that means they've put him out of the church so he's not coming to the church to hear the word. Not like in our day where you have a Bible app so he's missing out on that. Part of this, I I, I feel, is... To turn him over to Satan, they're not praying for him. Or at least they're not praying God protect him. God keep him safe. All the spiritual protection a church or a Christian family or friends provide for a person, they withdraw so that Satan can have his way to do whatever he wants to this guy's life. Now the goal isn't humiliation. The goal isn't isn't so he'll be punished. The goal is for him to hit rock bottom, the destruction of his body, so the spirit may be saved. So that he'll hit rock bottom and say, wow, I I need to get this sin out of my life. I I need to go back to Jesus. That's the point. Paul didn't call on this, though, to be done to every believer who's straight. That he did here. And he didn't call on this to be done for every unbeliever in order they might be saved. But he did here. The principle I take for this is that while this may not need to be done for every person, we may not need to pray for every person to hit rock bottom every time. There are times where we should. And in fact, there are times where we must. We are to see them saved. And in extremely, I don't know. I don't know when those times are. I I really don't. Um, uh, certainly, I mean, anyway, I, I don't know when those times are. But I know from God's Word there are those times. And I think if that's where we feel the Spirit leading us to pray, then that's certainly what we should do. I think we should, in the end, this is valuing their souls overall. Right? Now, if I... No, if I'm right on my what I believe the Bible says, this guy did turn. And he did come back. Second Corinthians references him, I believe. So he's restored. 
But what if they hadn't done that? What if they had said, oh, I love him too much to stop praying for God to protect him. And I stopped and I, we kept doing this. And he was just comforted in his sin until he died and went to hell. The picture is valuing their souls above all. And is essentially saying, just do whatever it takes for this hard case. Break their hearts. And bring them to Jesus so their soul may be saved on the day of the Lord. We do this and we pray these prayers because no one is saved apart from Jesus. Everyone who's saved is saved because they repent of their sins and they believe in Jesus. So first, God wants the lost to be saved. Second, the lost cannot be saved apart from Jesus. And then lastly, Jesus died to save the lost. There's one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus gave himself as a ransom. Ransom simply means to exchange one thing for something else. In this case, Jesus exchanged his life for our life. Jesus willingly gave up his life so mankind might not have to die. Jesus willingly died to pay the penalty for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. The lost we invite to church and, and pray for, to be saved are people Jesus died to save. Now, again, I know this is something we're familiar with, but it's something we should frequently think on. We should, we should think on the cross often. We should think on the cross often for any number of reasons. We should think on the cross often to glory in what was done on our behalf. We should think on the cross to rejoice in the greatness of a God who has loved us. But we should also re reflect on the cross, think on the cross to realize the price that was paid for people out there. Not just for us, but for others. And as we think about that, I think it does two things. It does keep us from thinking people are saved in ways other than through faith in Jesus. Because if God would send His Son to do something that be have all of that done to Him, and then just save someone for some other reason, what a cruelty! What a cruelty that was. But secondly, it reminds us of how passionate God is for the salvation of the lost. How much He loves the person we're praying for. He loves them more than we do. He wants them saved more than we do. And it stirs up our motivation to pray. And to pray with confidence. To pray God. And, and it, really, it reminds us of the depth of what the cross can cleanse. No one is beyond the reach of Jesus. No matter what they've done, no matter how far they've gone or how deep into depravity they are, they, they can be redeemed in a moment through Jesus. So we, we pray boldly. We pray confidently because Jesus died to save the lost. Let me close with this quote by Dutch Sheets. It says, God works on the earth through prayer. And you are going to have an awesome privilege of partnering with God to see people meet Christ. People will be in heaven because of your prayers. This is part of your destiny 
as a Christian. The enemy of prayer, Satan, will try to convince you that your prayers aren't accomplishing anything. But he is a liar. Prayer is one of the ways we partner with God in order to see the lost saved, the prodigals restored, captives set free, broken hearts healed. Let's be a people who pray.